If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today you'll be hearing from Professors Matthew Gabriel and David M. Perry, who are the authors of a new book, The Bright Ages, A New History of Medieval Europe. In a fresh narrative that crisscrosses ten centuries, they challenge a few widely held views of the medieval period. Our content director, David Musgrove, caught up with Matthew and David to find out more. Right. Okay. So we are talking about the Bright Ages, a new history of medieval Europe. Now, gentlemen, uh, obviously with your title, you are countering the idea of the Dark Ages, um, or at least that's the way that's that's the way I would understand it. So do you want to give us a little sense of, of what your big themes are in this book and maybe answer the question of why we need a book like this right now? You know, the, the story of the Dark Ages, that there was this thousand year period after the alleged fall of the Roman Empire until the Renaissance has really been uh, locked in the story of medieval European history since the 14th century, since since Petrarch, since the, the originators of the Renaissance started to tell a story about themselves as having rescued knowledge and having shed light. Um, and it's done a lot of harm. And we can talk a little about the harm in terms of um, Harm in terms of how we think about ourselves, harms in terms of how we tell the story of humanity, the story of Europe, uh, harm in terms of how it, it's plugged into a, a lot of violence and a lot of dangerous things. But also it's just wrong. We as professional historians and really as everyone we know who studies the Middle Ages, we just don't recognize the the picture of the Middle Ages that is so locked in in modern consciousness of this darkness, of savageness, of simplicity, of isolation. We just see a much more vibrant, complex, human, messy world. And we wanted to tell that story and tell it in the way that could reach the most people possible. Thanks, David. Uh, and Matthew, do you, do you have a sense about why now? Why do we need this book right now? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, one of the things that, that that's really struck us is that, uh, when we were thinking about kind of what book we wanted to get, get together, and David and I have known each other for a very long time, like we had talked about collaborating on a project, we didn't know kind of what for for, for many years, um, was thinking about like kind of what general popular histories of the European Middle Ages kind of existed out there outside of textbooks. Um, there's lots of really good textbooks that are used kind of in undergraduate classrooms, but they 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 do a different work than uh, a narrative history of, of a, uh, of a period really does. And so the ones that we could think of off the top of our head and actually, after we did a little bit of digging, like they're from the 1960s, um, 1970s, eighties, like early 1980s and, and scholarship has moved on very significantly in kind of how we conceptualize the period as a whole. And so that seemed to be the biggest space that we could, um, we could offer something, you know, the book is not comprehensive. Um, you know, it's only a few hundred pages. We could certainly fill you know a few hundred more with just with the the words that we wrote and ended up cutting out 
um, at various points during the writing process. Uh, but, you know, we wanted to give kind of an impression that that would be kind of, if you will, like each chapter is a hyperlink, like a, a suggestion of further um, of further readings, of further uh, places that people might want to investigate to see, again, kind of the complexity of a very human period in human history. But also we have a very specific moment when we decided to write this book. And it, it's a story that that I like because it's true, uh, where uh, Matt was in the bookstore at the British Library having just seen the exhibit, The Treasures of Anglo-Saxon England, I think that's what it was. And he was looking at the books on sale. And the books that were general histories of medieval Europe were about darkness. And having just gone through this, this exhibition of light and color and gold, you know, uh, you know there, there wasn't a book, again, as sort of a general history of the Middle Ages that said, um, that, that told the story that he had just literally seen with his eyes. So, so he texted me, he sent me a message on maybe, I don't remember, maybe a text, maybe Google chat. I'm not sure. Um, and he said, David, these, these books are not doing the work. We should write one. And I sent back immediately and we'll call it the bright ages. And that was it. And we just started from that moment. Nice. Uh, a book born from the British library bookshop is, uh, is, is a good book. Nice. <laughs> I mean, it's again, as with the stories we're telling, it's just true. That is what happened. So, so you, you're kind of, you're challenging terminology and nomenclature, but you, in the book, you're also challenging kind of the artificial definitions of the chronology of the period. Um, but, but a book does, does need to have some boundaries in terms of time and space. So, so where, where's, where does the story that you're telling start and finish uh, both in time and space? We started in the fifth century, which is where many similar books, but we begin, but we really wanted to start with a moment of creation, a moment that was generative rather than destructive. And it's not that there isn't great chaos and war and death during the fifth century, but we would argue that events like 410, the sack of Rome or 476, the deposition of the last Western Roman Empire emperor, these sort of these two dates that are often used that they're not particularly more chaotic than things that had been going on for the previous couple hundred years and continued for the next couple hundred years. Um, and so we wanted to instead look in that same period for a moment of creation. And I, I similarly with, with Matt texting me from the bookstore, I remember this moment too. I'd visited him in Virginia. I had to drive across a mountain chain in the in before dawn to get to the airport to fly home again to Minnesota where I live. Um, I do a lot of writing by dictating into a voice to text and then cleaning it up later. And I got on the highway and I hit the button on my phone and I said something like, what if the Middle Ages began on a day when an artisan entered a small chapel in Ravenna and turned the sky blue? And that's still our first sentence. It's, it's refined and changed. But we decided to start with this moment when um, probably at the orders of this fascinating woman, Gala Placidia, uh, uh, queen of the Visigoths and then mother and regent, uh, wife of an emperor, mother of an emperor, regent of the Western Roman Empire, a woman who wrote letters to Constantinople informing the emperor that he was doing theology wrong, uh, just an extraordinary person with an extraordinary life, that she she had this, this thing created that we recognize today, I think is one of the most beautiful sacred sites in the world. And that's at the same moment when destruction is happening, and we have to start somewhere. So we thought we would start at this moment of creation. Yeah, and then, and then as far as the ending, I mean, like we we had bandied back and forth, um, you know, kind of where where the story where the story should end. 
And there's many traditional endings to to the story of the European Middle Ages. Uh, It might be 1453 with the fall of Constantinople to the Ottoman Turks, or it might be 1348 with the Black Death, or it could be 1517 with the Protestant Reformation with Luther um, or things like that. And we we didn't really like that because, again, these monumental transitions, like you can see the lineages of um, these moments that date back several centuries. And that's, that's really kind of the problem that we saw throughout is that, you know, that, that, that these longer histories, I think, are really, really important. So we, we ultimately decided to kind of to do, in some ways, a double ending. And I don't want to give too much away about the book because you should all buy the book. Um, but that, uh, that the first ending is, is back in that same mausoleum in Ravenna with Dante. You know, late in his life, Dante was an exile from Florence, lived in Ravenna, and there's some scholarly suggestion that he actually was inspired, some of the language of the Paradiso, for example, was inspired by the same mosaics that Gala Placidia put up, you know, a century, a millennium before, right? And then we have the second kind of ending, which which takes place across the Atlantic in the New World, um, in which debates about the Spanish colonization and conquest um, were had at a university in, in, in Iberia about, you know, the nature of kind of what, what humans are, um, you know, and the medieval was the one that was arguing for what we might understand as tolerance. Um, and the new modern Renaissance Reformation ideas, humanist ideas, were arguing for conquest and brutalization. And that's not to say that, you know, it's, it's that kind of strict dichotomy, but, you know, the complications of those arguments, the complications of how, how you get from uh, Gala Placidia to Dante were, were the things that really excited us and we hope will excite the readers as well. So, so that's time covered. Uh, what about space? So the title of your book includes the word uh, Europe. So you're, 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 you're tackling medieval Europe. Um, I've done some interesting podcasts recently with, with some people who have, uh, like Professor Olivetto Tele, her book, um, African European sort of reframing Africans into Europe is an interesting approach. And then, uh, I had a chat with Professor Mark David Baer, uh, on his Ottomans book, which sort of suggests that the, we should see the, see the Ottoman Empire as part of the European experience. Um, so that's sort of bringing Asia and Africa into the story a bit more. I wonder, I wonder what you think about that. Can you, can you tell the story of Europe in exclusion or do you want to bring in some, some, things from outside Europe. Well, so we absolutely do bring in stuff outside of Europe, but the point that we're really trying to make kind of throughout, and this starts from the very first, um, you know, the very beginning with this story, this introduction of, of Gala Placidia, is that Europe is permeable, is that means that Europe is not a closed off space, that, that modern conceptualization of Europe as bounded by nation states is one that is absolutely foreign um, to the period that, that's under discussion, that their Europe, that their world, I should say, is one that includes North Africa, it includes the Middle East, later on, it includes um, uh, places across the Atlantic, all the way through, um, and then to the east, you know, uh, as far as um, India, what we think of as India and, and China as well. Um, you know, in our uh, in our chapter, for example, about early medieval England, like we talk about the reality of North Africans who are in um, who are in um, um, you know southern England from the very you know from the very beginnings of the Christianization of the or the re-Christianization of the period as well. And this this wasn't like a thing. It wasn't like a, a period of concern. It was because people moved um, both across the Mediterranean and up through Northern Europe, even across the channel in, into England. So the story, although it is kind of bounded by Europe, it's one that is much more expansive than, than we might think of when we say uh, Europe today. Okay. Um, now, one of the thing, one of the the big things that um, I got out of your book is um, is is the fact that 
there's this sense that uh, the the period is one of stasis where nothing really changes very much. Um, you you take a different view to that, right? You do see changes. So can you give us a sense about some of the big changes that you would see over over the long durée of this story? There are a lot, right? That's a thousand years. And I think sometimes when people talk about the Middle Ages, they they miss the scale of a thousand years and that it's it's a lot of time with a lot of different peoples and, and enormous kinds of linguistic changes and, and ways of imagining themselves. One of the things that both Matt and I like to do is to, to think about how people in their own time understood change, how they told stories about where they came from and where they were going, just as much as when you know we as historians saying, but this wasn't true or this was true. So for example, in our chapter on, on Byzantium or the Eastern Roman Empire, I'm very interested in this, this saint's life one of many, but one that's very explicit in which the saint is on his way to Jerusalem. He meets an angel and the angel says, no, no, don't go there. Turn around, go to the new Jerusalem. And he's trying to, which is Constantinople. So here we have in this text, a moment in which uh, an early medieval Eastern Mediterranean writer is saying, look, can we imagine the world in a different kind of way? Can we change the center of gravity? We see that again, I, I'm I'm not so great at the math, but let's centuries later with Saint Louis, when Saint Louis, uh, King Louis the Ninth, when he tries to to argue that this new church, Saint Chapelle, where he's got the relics of the Passion, is the center of the world, and he surrounds it with dazzling golden light, but also, as we talk about in the chapter, burns uh, sacred books of law of Jews just across the way. So there's there's complexity here. There is there's beauty. There is fire. There is uh, destruction. There is also great creation. Um, and we try to be very careful not to say that. Oh yeah, no, the Middle Ages were bright and that was fantastic. We're just trying to say that there was a lot happening and that there was uh, both creation and destruction. But we we do see people in the Middle Ages trying to reorganize how they understand the world and then convince others to do that as well. And it just turns up again and again and again. I, I, I think one of the things I would take, you know, if I was going to get a t-shirt printed from your book, it would be the middle ages. It's complicated because that was one of the, one of the <laughs> things that it, it seemed to be, you know, as you say, you know, a lot happened. It's a long period that you're talking about, but can we, can we go back to the start of, of the story? Um, and you mentioned this um, earlier, one of your answers, David, um, you, you offer a simple reframing of the fifth century under one premise uh, Rome did not fall. So, so would one of you be able to just sort of expand on that a bit? Because um, obviously, we do think you know Rome fell, the decline and fall, and all that. So, so that's wrong, right? So, we're certainly coming from that idea that Rome did not fall, because from a very basic standpoint, the Eastern Roman Empire continued for another thousand years, regardless of kind of where you want to to say, if you want to say that Rome fell in the fifth century um, CD, CE right, is that the Eastern Roman Empire, which has been kind of the center of gravity within at least the intellectual, social, cultural, political, economic world of the Roman Empire for more than than a century before um, when Rome supposedly fell, like continues in Constantinople, um, you know, for, for, for millennium afterwards. But the bigger thing, at least as we're focusing on kind of on Western Europe, or at least thinking about Rome from, a, from the perspective of Western Europe, is that Rome looms large in the imagination in ways that, it, that are really hard to, um, to, to, to understate, you know, four centuries afterwards. Uh, Gala Placidia, who, who exists kind of around the sack of Rome in 410, for example, she moves very easily across what we think of as kind of the height of the Roman Empire, right? She's in Iberia. She's in Italy. She moves to Constantinople. This is just like 
a thing she does. And she's certainly an extraordinary figure, but this is not characterized as something absolutely um, extraordinary that's, that would be out of reach for, for somebody, um, you know, um, doing this kind of work. When we're talking about, uh, you know, the fifth and sixth centuries, again, like a century removed from what we might say, um, typically as the fall of Rome, you still see people moving very easily and centering um, Rome in their um, in their imaginations. So, you know, I think that that pulling back and thinking about it away from a, a strictly political or military standpoint reveals a, a deeper nuance and complexity in which Rome still exists in the imagination, both as an empire, but as a, as a city and a location, you know, throughout for centuries after um, the fifth. And I just want to say that I think there are lots of people who were alive in the early Middle Ages who would have been very surprised to be told that Rome had fallen in the fifth century, that either the the strict bureaucratic, legal, political control of the Roman Empire had not been true for a long time before the fifth century for them, um, if we think about Britain and the withdrawal of the legions and, and things like that, um, but ha- you know that there have been lots of people crossing borders and local people who uh, established control. And sometimes they got a Roman stamp of approval and sometimes they didn't. And that's been going on for a long time. Um, and this idea that then the Goths came through, well, you know, Germans and Romans had been crossing borders and mixing and, and that division had already become very messy and hybrid uh, long before the fifth century. Uh, so the things that were kind of chaotic had been chaotic for a long time. And the things that were stable remained stable for a long time. And there's this wonderful moment in uh, Procopius's history of the Gothic Wars that we, we talk about um, where Belisarius, the great general, is, is before the walls of Ravenna and he's besieging it. And the people of Ravenna come out and say, hey, how about you just become Western Roman emperor? You'll become the new emperor and we'll just go back to the way we were, you know, a couple generations before. Now, Belisarius says no. And the reasons he says no are really important for us to rethink that that shift to the center of gravity away from Rome or Italy to Constantinople. Um, again, Belisarius would have been very surprised to know that the Roman Empire had fallen, but he could have said yes. And then suddenly we'd be right back to having two emperors, just like we had a century before and a century before that. Um, and we'd have to tell a very different story. So these things, you know, we also want to talk about the history is contingent and these big narratives like the fall of Rome. Uh, that that have kind of dominated our imagination, they can't be the only way we look at the past. They can't be the only way that we tell the story. Can you just, that word contingent, historians bandy that around a bit. What what, what do you mean by history is contingent? Sure. I mean, very simply, people make decisions and they could have made decisions other than they made. Um, and so for the example that David just gave, right, about uh, Belisarius, like if if we take that anecdote at face value, which there's there's all sorts of caveats about whether we should we should trust that 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 caveat. Like, what if Belisarius said yes, right? I will become Roman emperor, right? Like like history changes on you know on a whim right there, and that you you've reconstructed kind of division. You have two major um, figures, powerful figures, both in east and west, and you have a reconstituted you know um, Roman Empire, something akin to the third or fourth century rather than you know, what we think of after the quote unquote fall of Rome. Um, another, another momentous decision um, is Urban II and calling the, you know, what we call the first crusade. Like what if he didn't like, there were lots of opportunities, um, you know, for um, 
uh, bishops of Rome to call for what we think of as, as Christian holy war. But he decided to do this in a particular way, in a particular place, at a particular time. And that had momentous consequences, not just for the people who were directly involved in the event, but for centuries afterwards, as they dealt with kind of the legacy of these things. So, you know, that's, and that's, that's kind of what we mean when we say, you know, history is messy because it involves humans is that people make decisions and and it's not not to get back to kind of this this older um understanding of kind of great men making you know um doing great things or anything like that but there are a, min- a million different and millions and millions sorry and there are millions and millions of decisions every day that can make um make the shape of history change course uh, very significantly right so so you're basically saying that the uh, the sort of the echoes of the roman empire carry on through through the period a long way and i suppose one of the uh, one of the the obvious ways that they would continue would be in the form of the church, um, which d- does that sort of carry on its structures and in, in, in some of its some of its, its power play. No, um, well, sort of, uh, <laughs> which is basically like like you said, it's just yeah, yeah it's more complicated, right? It, like the Middle Ages is more complicated. Um, yeah, so I think one of the things that people have, and one of the things that we're we're certainly trying to fight against, is that this idea of continuity within Rome, kind of as you say, kind of carries through with the Bishop of Rome, what we think of as as the Pope. But as we're at pains to kind of point out, as we we trace like these moments of bishops of Rome who are important or less important, kind of depending. We talk about Gregory the Great in the seventh century, and then we talk about Innocent the Third, for example, like in the thirteenth. Is like those are not the same. Uh, popes. Like the Bishop of Rome is a very different thing. And so the church kind of centered in Rome as an intellectual space is a line of continuity, but the actual power that emanates from Rome is very, very, very different and ebbs and flows kind of depending upon A, who's kind of there and B, what kind of political and um, cultural support that um, the people can muster around that as well. So, you know, one of the things we talk about in our chapter, um, um, I think it's um, the golden hen in the walls of Rome, is that the focus of the Bishop of Rome, Gregory the Great, at that time in the 7th century, is much more fo- kind of locally focused. It's on the Italian peninsula, though with with some exceptions, you know, reaching into um, into the British Isles. But by the time you get to, to someone like Innocent III, who we talk about, you know, with great significance kind of later on, his his worldview is is kind of expansive, like in a, in a very expansive Europe that includes North Africa, the Middle East, uh, the British Isles, and even beyond into Kiev and Rus, and even you know further than that, um, you know down the Silk Road and, and towards um, India and, and China. So those things, I think those 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 differences are really important, even if we call them like there is a continuity in um, kind of the Roman Church. If you- and also, I one of the points that we like to make a lot is that. There are many, many different Christianities during our period. And even if we just look at Christianities in Western Europe of people who might nominally think of themselves as somehow connected to what's going on in Rome, which would vary widely, people are making arguments about what that means, what that means on a local level in terms of land ownership or who gets to fight who, people on it on a all the way to the, the cosmological level of how uh, the book of Revelation is going to come into play shortly or not. I mean, so from really, you know, can I raise pigs in this forest, um, even though it's connected to a church, all the way to how time is going to end? People in the Middle Ages are making arguments, and sometimes their arguments are backed by weapons, and sometimes they're backed by pamphlets or storytelling. I like arguments that are backed by storytelling and, and hopefully in, in beautiful works of art as well as really interesting, weird little texts. Um, and sometimes in 
in theological doctrine or canon law, right? But they're, people are making arguments about what it is going to mean to be a Christian in every possible way throughout the period. There is never, ever one idea that is even remotely dominant uh, throughout the, the European Middle Ages. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. But again, at the same time, medieval people also told really dirty stories about, you know, neighbors having sex or, you know, affairs or, or farts. Right. Now, I know the answer to this question is is read read our book, but um, j- just to expand on it a little bit. So you, you just talked about there the complexities, the messiness, the different sorts of Christianities. Reading reading a book, trying to understand the Middle Ages here, sat in the 21st century when a lot of people live broadly secular lives and don't intersect with Christianity very much. How, how can we how can we get to the medieval mindset? How can we understand how far Christianity did shape people's lives, if it did shape people's lives in a, in a, in a regular way um, during the period. What I would like people to understand about medieval religion is that medieval people of faith were full people who engaged faith with all the different kinds of ways that modern people do as well, from great devotion that consumes all of their thoughts all of the time, to really kind of haphazard go to church maybe once a year. For medieval Christians, it would be Easter more likely than um, any other time of year, but only maybe. Maybe give a confession of sins if you thought you were about to die, maybe once. Um, so from, from you know, on, on a spectrum of understanding. But that also medieval people often did not see, as I think modern people of faith don't either, uh, don't necessarily see conflict where an outsider might see conflict. So I'm a, I'm a scholar, uh, and we don't actually talk about this too much in the book, of medieval Venice. And medieval Venetians get a bad rap because they're also making lots of money. Um, and uh, so they'll do things that are religious, and then more in the in the early modern and modern times, people say, oh, well, those Venetians, they didn't really mean it. Uh, they didn't really mean the faith. And I can tell you that's just not how they wrote about their own world. It's And, and maybe that's convenient, but also they just – they spend a lot of time and effort not telling that story of, uh, they're telling a story of connection between all the different frameworks of their lives. And then we see people with great tension, again, as I think, in, in, with different different variables, modern people of faith do as well, where um, they're aware that they're they're living a secular life, but they also believe, they believe something that may be in conflict with it. And and they they are racked with with doubt and 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 guilt or, or fear, and they again respond to that in, in all the different ways you might expect. Some by doubling down on the on the the hedonism, and other people by building great churches or trying to do both at the same time. So, certainly over the years, in, in teaching and talking about the Middle Ages, there is a tendency I, I have found to to look at faith, medieval faith, as monolithic. To assume that people were spending a lot more time thinking about religion all the time in the Middle Ages, and I would, I would urge us instead to think of them as full humans capable of all of the contradictions and complexities and inner monologues and debates that that we are. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I'd, I'd kind of add to that, which I, I agree exactly with, precisely with what David was kind of was, was talking about there, is simply that we have a tendency, I think, in the modern world to to want to subdivide 
um, the world up or, or pe- how people interact with the world up into these, these discrete categories. So we say, this is political, this is cultural, this is social, this is economic, this is religious. Like, we don't actually live that way in the same, you know, sense that, you know, when we're talking about like a modern university, right? Like we might be in, uh, as academics in different disciplines or something like that. You take a course in history, you might take a course in economics or something like that, but like everything kind of overlaps. And so the medieval world was no different than that. Um, the example that I would give, which is actually very similar to what, you know, David was talking about is that we have a, we have a long kind of anecdote in which we, we start off a chapter about uh, the miracles of Saint-Foy and in Conque in, in what's now Southern France, in which this, um, this this local lord kind of runs afoul of another local lord gets um, gets his eyes gouged out and then the saint kind of heals her, um, but you know kind of embedded within that there's there's lots of other things because it it involves kind of a network of political alliances which are at play a cultural uh, affinity to a certain town an economic reason to be in that town because tolls are collected there and then you know the religious aspect as well which is devotion to a particular saint who will give them access to um, to divine power, which will literally do things in the world. So it's not like, you know, in the medieval world, like if, as you're thinking about religion, it's not that everybody's very consciously saying like, oh, because of God, I, I want to do this, but it's shaping kind of a wider world. It's one kind of really important aspect of a much wider uh, way that people are thinking about what they do in their ordinary um, in their ordinary lives, even in a largely agricultural um, community, that the way that feasts are structured throughout the year, the, the liturgical feasts of the church are structured throughout the year as signals for when you plant, when you harvest, when you sow. And that's not that, you know, that they're doing it for religious reasons, but you can't just extract that religion from, uh, from again, from the everyday life of, 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 of people in the Middle Ages. So, so that's that's talked a bit about Christianity, but Christianity wasn't the only religion in town, was it? Um, in the Middle Ages, um, Islam uh, comes to prominence fairly early on in in your story. Um, and in your book, you talk about the mutually beneficial pragmatism that Christian and Muslim leaders exhibited. Uh, you're talking about the early stages of of, uh, of Islam there, I think. But um, can you give us any sort of broad brush observations on how the two religions interacted? You know, one of the points that was really important for us to make, there there are lots of stories about the history of Islam, and we do have a chapter that talks a little bit about its origins. But again, that's that's a story that a lot of people tell and tell wonderfully. The point that we want to make is that throughout the history of the European Middle Ages, from the origins of Islam, or certainly within a, a few generations, Islam is a medieval European religion. There are always... Muslims living in what we would call medieval Europe. So we cannot tell the story of medieval Europe without the story of Islam and without looking at the different ways in which Muslims lived, both in their own communities and in in more uh, mixed communities. And the same is true with with the history of of Judaism as well, that Judaism, which will be less of a surprise, but it still needs to be said, is a medieval European religion. Um, And that also with Judaism and, and Islam, as with Christianity, these are plural, that there are many different kinds of both sort of strict uh, well, things we might identify as uh, sex within faith, different kinds of different kinds of Islam, different, different ideas about what it means to be a Jew, but also, of course, individuals who live within their religious traditions very differently from each other. Um, so rather than sort of saying, well, there are the three religions and here's how they interacted, 
there are three kind of dominant religious groups, but then an almost infinite variety of, of individuals and ways of being a member of that faith and ways of interacting with each other, um, often quite peacefully and often quite violently. And we have to tell both of those stories. And even, you know, someone... I, I'm I'm really interested in things. Again, maybe it's because I study Venice, which is a merchant city, and so they they acquire things and then they send things away, and they tell stories about doing that. And that's that's something I've spent decades thinking about. But even if you live in a place where you might never personally meet a North African Muslim, which surely many um, medieval Europeans did live in such places, they're still interacting in a world of ideas like commentaries on Aristotle that flow. Uh, we have a chapter on this on, uh, focused around the, fig- the Jewish figure of Maimonides, but it's, it's as much about Maimonides or as much about the, the commentaries of Aristotle. Don't worry, you don't have to know Aristotle to like this chapter. Um, but, but the ways in which an I, a particular debate and ideas and innovations, new ideas flow from Iran, which is really quite far away from where we spend most of the book, to Egypt, to Iberia, to France and Italy, and back again. So Wherever you live, you're in a world in which these ideas are flowing. You're in a world in which things are moving. Um, I have a very good friend, um, uh, Kathleen Kennedy, currently, I, th- I think, at Bristol, who talks about ginger and parrots and coconuts in medieval England, because you wouldn't think that medieval England has a lot of coconuts, but but they do. They're there. We still have them. We have records of them. So again, if you're living in medieval England, regardless of who you meet down the street at the the pub or the church, you're still engaging in a world in which ideas and things move. And that shapes how you encounter uh, your own life and think about who you are. So so that's interesting because a lot of people's views of the Middle Ages and and the interaction between Christians and Muslims would be sort of suffused with the the Crusades and and the violence that that period um, exhibited. Where do you stand on that clash of civilizations narrative that uh, that perhaps some people still see as as uh, as dominating this story? Sure, I mean I'll, I'll be super clear. I mean the clash of civilizations narrative is nonsense. Um, you know from the very beginning, and that we t- we talk about this you know in in our chapter about um, the beginnings of Islam, which is as David said, kind of a, a medieval European religion among many other things, is that uh, there's some evidence, right? Is that uh, that the conquest of Jerusalem from the Byzantines by um, you know what this this group uh, of monotheists that would later become um, become known as Muslims, you know it was welcomed by some of the, the the Christian inhabitants of the city. In fact, the Muslims may have participated, in, and it seems pretty likely that they participated in Easter celebrations alongside the Christians at the same time. So, although you know even at this this kind of foundational moment this, of of this narrative of the clash of civilization. It's a lot more complicated than that because the Christians and Muslims were both devout monotheists and they thought of themselves as potential allies. Who they didn't like were those people up in Constantinople. They were the terrible ones who were exploiting kind of the locals. And so the religious element wasn't the main um, factor. Another great example that that we kind of point out at, and, and this certainly appears in many narratives um, um, that exist about the Crusades is during the first crusade, or again, this kind of another foundational moment in this nostalgia for, or, or this nostalgic understanding of this clash of civilizations 
as the Christians, as the Latin Christians are marching through um, the Near East, like they're making alliances with local Muslim leaders and local Muslim leaders are more than happy to do this as well because they're playing off one another, um, you know, to, to, to gain kind of political or, or social capital along the way. So throughout this whole period, um, you know, and this, this extends for centuries afterwards, is that the, the dividing lines between religious traditions are really important, but they're not the only thing that, that people take into account. And so, you know, the idea of this East and West or Islam versus Christianity is simply just not true when you look at the actual um, events of the past. Okay, so again, it's complicated, it's messy, and, and we need to understand things on a on a more local basis. I suppose is, is one of the things. Now, look, one of, one of the I, I really enjoyed your book. One of the things I, I, I found really interesting was um, was was the stuff you you talked about in terms of time and, and medieval understanding of time, um, which, uh, I'm, so I'm just going to ask you to go into, so, so, you know, today we, we see time as a linear sort of thing, you know, I know what's happening later on. I know what's happening tomorrow. It's kind of, it's going to go on. Was, was there a different way of understanding time in the middle ages? And again, I'm asking you a big question there, so you're going to have to, you're going to have to uh, bunch up to do that, but, uh, but, but do your best. Sure. I- <laughs> I mean, how many times can we say messy on the podcast, right? Um, so, but I think that, you know, it's not that time that the people in the Middle Ages, especially medieval, um, medieval Christians in Europe in the Middle Ages, it's not that they didn't see time as linear in that there were, there were things that happened before other things and things that would happen after um, certain things, right? Like they, they understand like an idea of progression. It's simply that I think it's important to understand, and, and we do this today, right? Like is that there's multiple temporalities, there's multiple understandings of time, and they overlap and they interpenetrate in interesting ways. And so, for example, is that there's, there's a circular sense of time that would be um, related to the, the agricultural calendar, right? Like you do certain things um, at a certain time of year to, you know, to sow, you do certain things at a certain time um, to, to, to reap, you do certain things, you know, for harvesting, etc. right? Like, and those happen kind of every year, and it just kind of goes in a loop. The liturgical cycle, the way that the church has structured or um, Christian tradition has structured the way that it celebrates and remembers things. Like those happen every year, right? The Feast of Easter happens at a certain time during the year. The Feast of Christmas happens at a certain time during the year. Like those things are circular. That those circles, if you will, exist within a larger linear um, timeline in which there is creation and then there is the end of time. So, you know, one of the ways that I like to, to think about it, and I don't know if this is useful, is kind of like a helix. Um, if you think of like a DNA strand, if you can kind of picture that in your head, and that things are kind of revolving around something, but that, that there's there's an imaginary center that penetrates through and, you know, from a beginning to an end in that you will, you'll come back around to the same place, but it's necessarily going to be different because, you know, it's not the same year. It's not the same people involved or, or something like that. So, so a good example of this, right, is that um, if you think about uh, the way that the Christian Old Testament, the Christian New Testament is structured, is that especially in the Christian Old Testament, the story of Israel's kings falls it, it somewhat in kind of a linear pattern, right? The, the rise of the kings, and then you have kind of, you have Saul, and then you have David, and then you have Solomon, the splintering of a kingdom um, between north and south, and then eventually the fall of both in the Babylonian captivity and things like that. that this is a very, um, a very simple one that, that certainly medieval Christians would understand. Um, the way that you see historians of the ninth century talk about the Carolingian Empire is one that mimics that biblical 
narrative because you have emperors and then a splintering of the kingdom with the Carolingian civil war and then the collapse of those kingdoms and external threats with the Vikings and the Magyars and Muslims coming in. So historians writing in that period are very, I think, making very clear parallels between that biblical history. It's not that they didn't, it's not that they thought that what was happening you know, uh, thousands of years ago, it was exactly the same as what was happening in their own time, but they saw echoes and parallels. And so they saw a, kind of this pattern repeating in their own time, even as things had progressed from where they had been in the past. That's good. I can think of a, 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 a silly physical example of that. Actually, you know, I've written about the Bayer Tapestry and in the Bayer Tapestry, they, they actually reuse biblical stories uh, within the context of the 11th century, don't they? So yeah, Exactly. And, and it's not it's not because they are uncreative or, or lazy, right? It's because they are seeing echoes in time in their own in their own period. Right now, uh, we've 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 covered some of the complexities of this of the period, but we've covered a, a fair bit of ground. But we need to uh, move towards a bit of a conclusion. I'm just gonna I'm gonna throw a little quote to you, which I really like from your book, and just get a sense from. It's it's a good quote. It's, you say we can at times revel in the weirdness of the medieval and forget to teach the connections. Now. Surely we should we should revel in the weirdness of the Middle Ages, shouldn't we? Absolutely. I mean, the medieval people were people. So along with messy, the other word we use a lot is human, right? We want them to be, but they were not modern humans, and they did see the world in different ways, and they did things that they they told stories that were that seemed a little weird sometimes, and they they did things that seemed a little weird. Um, I don't know. I, we live in an era in which a lot of people are doing things that seem a little weird to me as well. Um, it's, it's different, uh, but humans are weird. We're idiosyncratic. We, we, we respond to stimuli or make up things or react in ways that are, are very con- contextual on the world we live in um, and are often very hard to parse from uh, a distance. Certainly one of the reasons I became a medievalist is that the, the work, the writing I read felt at the same time, strange and familiar. And, um, we don't want to go too far into the familiar and say, oh, they're just like us. We also don't want to go so far into the weird and say, oh, those primitive medieval people, uh, you know, let's just laugh at them. We want we want to live in both at the same time. What, what about you, Matthew? Do you revel in the weirdness? I, I do revel in the weirdness, but I think just like David said, it's, it's, it's a both and, not an either or, about the weirdness and the connections, you know, is that, you know, we understand that these people lived a long time ago and they just did things very differently. They thought about the world in very different ways. But at the same time, like we should think about like, well, what are, they're human too. Like they, they exist, um, they existed in the world. They lived not in black and white, like in a stereotypical kind of old timey movie where they're, they're moving at two times speed or something like that. And, and nothing's in color and everything's grainy, but like they lived in, um, you know, uh, in a real world that had sights and, and sounds and smells and had a tactile experience. And so we're trying to be honest to them, you know, about, um, you know, not just for their sake, but for our sake about what that, that experience was like. I guess you probably both enjoyed that recent green Knight film then, because that was pretty weird. We think it did a very good job of getting at some of the weirdness, not just that of the medieval world, but of the medieval stories that they're these stories that were very popular or we think they're very popular, uh, within the middle ages, within different, and that are that seem really strange, but again, at the same time, medieval people also told really dirty stories about you know neighbors having sex or you know affairs or or farts, right? That that both the the strange allegorical green knight exists in a continuum with fart jokes, and we have to tell we have to at least know that both existed, even though I really only want to go to the strange allegorical movie, not the other one, so much. 
Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe that would be a better T-shirt for our book. Uh, <laughs> Dave is, um, you know, the Middle Ages allegorical um, stories and fart jokes. Okay, I'll, I'll buy that too. Um, there you go. Right now, a couple of quick ones just to bring us up up to date. So, just sort of thinking about how people understand the Middle Ages today, which is obviously a, a big thing, a big a big thing you're exploring. I wonder. Um, Something that, that strikes me as very interesting is I'm sat here in the UK, in, in Bristol, uh, and, and you're in the States. Um, do you think that we understand the medieval period differently uh, in Britain and, uh, and across the pond in America? Yes, absolutely. 100%. Um, and I think in some ways that goes back to your question about um, or our discussion about kind of the weirdness and the connections. I think at least my experience, um, you know, teaching in a classroom for the last, you know, two decades or so is that the students see only the weirdness because it seems like the Middle Ages is something that happened far away and over there, wherever there and then kind of are. And so they, they don't see the way that um, they connect in the 21st century to this this period from uh, a long time ago, and I mean that in the sense of the way that the the kind of the past has moved, you know, across that thousand years, and you could so you could trace political, cultural, social, economic development, religious developments, etc., kind of on that way. But the way that the past has been utilized um, in the intervening period in the Middle Ages, specifically, uh, nostalgically, in order to motivate and and to to um, to justify certain political actions in the intervening period. For example, in the 19th century in the United States, like this, this renovation of the idea of chivalry, which, which doesn't have anything to do with kind of actual chivalry necessarily, but this kind of idealized vision, like, like motivated and, and kind of underpinned Southern white plantation culture that led to and was involved in kind of the American Civil War, the reaction to Reconstruction and things like that. Like, so you have to understand the medieval past, but then you have to understand the way that the medieval past was remembered in the United States in order to understand that. But in the United States, you know, it's certainly there's, there's that distance that thinks that those, all of those things are unconnected from one another. And so that's why I think drawing those connections, at least in the American context, is very important. And it's certainly, I remember around the same time as I went to Paris, I actually lived for a year in Leeds in the, in the 80s. Um, and there was a church down the way from the house we were living in that had a 12th century base. Uh, it had been done again in the 15th century and more or less left state, a very small church. I couldn't tell you where it is. It's not one that you would go to unless you live there. I, I, was, I was struck by that, that living in a place where such objects just exist casually down the street definitely uh, reshaped how I thought about time uh, as, as, a, as an American teenager. Um, but I also think it's important, if I may, for modern Europeans to also look at the ways in which these stories have been manipulated and shaped, uh, in which uh, in the history of European imperialism, the Middle Ages were created as a space to, to create a kind of a, an or, origin stories, as, as a colleague of mine says, for these places uh, and, and used in particular kinds of ways that we always make use of the past, whether we claim it as our past or an other past in order to justify uh, who we think we are today. And that, uh, and that this, it's just as, it's just as manipulated in modern European contexts as elsewhere, it's just done a little bit differently when it's seen as your history and it's seen as located in your ground. Uh, and, uh, and hopefully we can unpack some of that as well. 
That was Matthew Gabriel and David M. Perry. Their book, The Bright Ages, A New History of Medieval Europe, is out now. And they've also written a feature for the January issue of BBC History magazine. That's on sale now and also includes features on Britain in 1921, Traitors Through British History and Queen Victoria's Spy Network. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.